Alright, everybody bring it in. Huddle up. Let's go. Read option back here on a beautiful Wednesday afternoon. Hope everybody had a wonderful, wonderful 4th of July uh, and hopefully got some time off. There's been a lot going on all over the place, all over the world, but specifically in the sports world. Uh, things have been pretty freaking nuts. Um, right now we got our Milwaukee Bucks, Phoenix Suns, NBA Finals Game 1 was last night. We had the match. We have name, image, and likeness. Shakari Richardson, the Olympics. There's a million different things going on, and that's going to be kind of the crux of today's episode. We're going back to our sports gumbo format here, and it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm very excited to uh, to be back here. Like I said, took a little bit of time off, and uh, now we're back. We're rolling. So things are great, and... I don't know about what everyone else did for the 4th of July. I had a a very fun, long day uh, full of debauchery and other other things. But uh, I actually went to Nats Park to see my first professional sporting event since the pandemic. Now, I did go to a a minor league game a couple weeks ago, which was a ton of fun. But like first major league you know, top tier professional sporting event. It was all systems go at the ballpark. People were out in full force. It was the 4th of July in Washington, D.C. It was an unbelievable day, just start to finish. You know, we got a chance to to do, uh, just to be in the crowd during something like that. Um, and you're seeing everybody. And I had a couple moments where I went with two of my roommates. They went off to go get food and beer and whatnot. And I'm kind of standing there out in, in the outfield standing area only have a little spot. I was like watching the game and it was just this surreal moment of like, like, are we back? Like, I, th- I think we're, we're like fully back at this point. And it was, it was a really, really great, really, really great time. Uh, and if you ever get a chance to do the 4th of July in DC, it's one of my favorite things about living here and living in this area. Last year was a little bit different, obviously because of the pandemic, but my first couple Fourth of Julys here. This is this was now the fourth Fourth of July here, which is crazy to think. Uh, but they've all been spectacular. Um, the first one, I had a bunch of friends come down, and we went we hosted, did like a big shrimp boil. Had hundred, hundred, about fifty people throughout the day coming in and out of the house. Uh, the next year, I remember going into the city and walking around and, and going to a party there at, at a friend's house, which is a lot of fun to do as well. And now this year, you know, spent the whole day, went from the Nats Park, hit up a brewery afterwards, and we went to a friend of ours who, who lives in the city, uh, and we went up and watched the fireworks from the roof. And you're looking out, and you can see the Washington Monument, you can see the Jefferson Memorial, you can see even the White House out in the distance, and no matter where you looked off the top of the the, the roof there, there were fireworks going off. It was It was unbelievable, and so I hope everyone had a safe but very fun 4th of July because I think after the last year and a half, I think we've earned it. I think we earned that night, that day, however you spent it. And even if you spent just hanging out, not doing anything and not being a degenerate like me and just drinking all day, uh, I hope you guys had a great chance to be able to go out and have a bunch of fun. So uh, with that, I want to hop in here because there's a lot of NBA action. There's a lot of stuff to talk about. And so the first part of our little sports gumbo going on, uh, it has to be game one. It has to be game one. Phoenix, Milwaukee, Chris Paul planting his flag, cementing himself, saying, this is my series. I'm setting the tone right now. Now, we've seen in years past, yes, winning game one 72% of the time means that you're going to end up winning the series in the NBA Finals, but it's no guarantee, right? It's no guarantee, and we saw Milwaukee drop game one against Brooklyn. We saw Milwaukee drop game one against Atlanta and now we're seeing Milwaukee drop game one against Phoenix I think coach Bud is one of those kinds of coaches who is really good at you know let's see what they come at us and let's make adjustments out like outside of the game you have in-game coaches who you know you have to be able to do that to some extent you have to be willing to make adjustments I would expect Milwaukee to come out and really push for game two but this game was all about Chris Paul because Chris Paul started off after not scoring in the first quarter, finishes the game with 32 points, nine assists. He is the only other player uh, besides Michael Jordan to have a 30 point and uh, 30 points and eight plus assists 
in his first NBA Finals game. Difference being, obviously, Michael Jordan was a lot younger than the 36-year-old Chris Paul. But Chris Paul was phenomenal. I mean, everything he did on the defensive end, on the offensive end, being able to find his spots, uh, and the way he's been able to work off of these younger guys and really kind of rally them has been uh, it's been extraordinary. It's been so much fun to watch. And, and Chris Paul is the heartbeat of this team. He's outrageously efficient. He's 12 of 19 from the floor, uh, four of seven from three. And he had a 16 point third quarter. So you put up 16 points in the third quarter. Like, heck, what do you expect is going to happen? You're going to end up bulldozing that game because anytime Chris Paul gets on one of those heaters, he is up there with one of those guys where it's like, and Steve Nash was this way too, where uh, you want them to score more. It's like, why can't you shoot the ball? And, and this old, we've talked about it on the pod before, but these old school style of point guards, you know, who, who want to initiate the offense, want to get everybody involved. And ultimately like, that will help you win. But we also love guys who are just going off. You know, it's part of the reason everybody falls in love with Steph Curry. And, and LeBron's one of the few guys who can both set up and initiate the whole offense. And, but it's all run through him. And he'll also then drop 40 points on you in an NBA finals game. But Chris Paul, he's this guy who can just orchestrate an offense and get the best out of these guys. And the demeanor, you know, he's the best winner to have never won anything. I heard somebody say that about him. And I thought that was such an interesting point because whenever he lost in those other series in the Western conference semifinals, when he was with the Clippers and the Western conference finals, when he was with the, with the Rockets, you know, he just finds ways to will you to wins and what he's gotten out of guys. I mean, Devin Booker was already an all-star caliber player before Chris Paul got there, but what he's gotten out of Deandre Ayton and, you know, Deandre Ayton has really gotten lost in the shuffle here because when Luca, and, and Trey Young, and they're, they're out here having these monstrous first, you know, three years in the league. DeAndre Ayton, people look back on that draft saying, like, why, why did he go number one? Like, were we that scared off by the fact that Luka was coming from overseas? Were we that worried about Trey Young's size? I mean, those guys are electric. And we really saw what Trey Young's made out of in the playoffs this year. But there was a reason he went number one overall. At his size, to be as nimble and as agile and as athletic, I mean, he's almost seven feet tall, but he doesn't look like he's seven feet tall. He doesn't move like he's seven feet tall. He moves like he's a wing. You know, he's got fantastic footwork. He's got an incredible ability to play defense at a high level without fouling, you know. And for everything that Chris Paul has has built DeAndre up, Ayton up to be, and we'll get to that in a second, DeAndre Ayton had these tools. I mean, he wasn't a great defensive player in college, but he was a smart defensive player in college. And the roof for him was always going to be pretty high on the defensive end. No, he's not the size and length of Gobert or Embiid, but he's a technically brilliant defender. And when Draymond Green can be the best defender in the league for a, a five-year stretch and can win multiple defensive players of the year and basically play center at 6'8", you don't have to be this guy with a seven foot eight wingspan to be a really, really high-level defensive player. And the fact that he doesn't get into foul trouble when he's picking up Giannis half the time is extremely impressive. And, I mean, he's basically, at this point, you can lock him in for shooting 75% from the floor, which is crazy, about 20 points, and 15 to 20 rebounds. I mean, he's he and Giannis both did this, but they there's a list of only about six guys to ever uh, have 15 – 15 and 15 so 15 points 15 rebounds in their first finals game ever and it was like tim duncan deandre ayton and kareem abdul jabbar and i think and Giannis was also in that category because Giannis, you know with the injury and the scary you know knee sprain thank god it wasn't anything worse than that i mean we were all sitting watching there i was watching it with my buddies and was thinking like there's no way there's no way Giannis gets by that. And, and, and there's no way that's not a torn ACL or a torn meniscus. And we may find out after the fact that it, it, there is a partial tear or there's something and he's kind of playing through it, but he looked pretty good last night. I mean, he looked, you know, the Bill Simmons always loves to do like the percent. Like he looks like, yeah, he's about 86% back. Right. You know, he looked about like 86% of Giannis. I, I thought he looked pretty good, especially in that first half. Now he didn't have the biggest scoring night. He finished with only 20 points. But I also think a part of that has to do with the job DeAndre Ayton did against him, which, again, for this guy to be essentially cast off after only two years because just because of how good Luca and Trey Young have been since they came into the league, stepping in and being able to score 30 points consistently. 
you know, maybe not 30 points a night. Well, Luca's up there and Trey's getting kind of close to that, you know, especially the, his first year when they were just like, let Trey run. But it's really impressive to see the job that DeAndre Ayton has done. And the impact that Chris Paul has on him is the really Im- impressive thing because DeAndre Ayton even said after the game, you know, like I wanted to, I wanted to punch him in the face. I wanted to slap him. I wanted to yell at him, but he didn't. He took his lumps. You know, he was a, he's a smart cerebral one of the most cerebral basketball players of all time and deandre ayton has the self-awareness to recognize that and say you know what you know what chris paul i don't know shit teach me you know i don't know what i'm doing here please teach me teach me how how to be the best version of myself that i can be and chris paul has is this bulldog mentality you know, he and, he and Kyle Lowry are kind of cut from that same cloth, but Chris Paul is, is just an all-around better player than Kyle Lowry. Not to say Kyle Lowry's not a great player. He's a very good player. He's going to end up in the Hall of Fame one day, probably, because everybody gets into the, the Basketball Hall of Fame. But again, Chris Paul just finding ways to kind of dig in and, and get the best out of DeAndre Ayton. And you see it on the way that they roll. I mean, the, the the chemistry that exists. And I don't know if that's more just Chris Paul and DeAndre Ayton having that combination, or if it's a legit, like just every center that Chris Paul plays with gets a million times better because we saw it happen in LA. We saw it happen when he was playing with DeAndre Jordan, who was not, a was a pretty good player, you know, but then he became an all-star when he was playing with Chris Paul and Blake Griffin. So for, for my money, I look at that relationship and the, and the one-two punch they have on their running pick and rolls, especially when, you know, they're picking up Chris Paul so quickly when he crosses half court. I mean, at, at the end of the game there, they were basically like picking him up full court, you know, do not let him get across the line and milk the clock down as much as you possibly can. But then DeAndre Ayton sets a screen, you know, 10 feet beyond the three-point line, and he's already rolling to the basket because he knows that's exactly where Chris Paul's eyes are moving. And because of that motion and everything that's going off off of it, someone's going to have to crash down with DeAndre Ayton. Or what the Bucks are doing last night was they were just switching their bigs onto Chris Paul. And then Chris Paul says, hey, you want to put Brooke Lopez on me or Bobby Portis on me? Cool. I'm going to get to my spot in my mid-range and I'm going to bury, th- I'm going to bury mid-range jumpers over you over and over and over again. And that's the other thing here that I love about this Phoenix Suns team is that they're not built off of analytics. You know, they're not just like, which don't get me wrong, there's definitely analytics involved here, but in the conventional way that we think about analytics in basketball, which is shoot a bunch of three-pointers and layups, which has been the Daryl Morey method, right? We saw what he did with the Houston Rockets time after time with James Harden. And Chris Paul played in a system like that, but Chris Paul's biggest asset as a scorer is his mid-range. And his running mate right now, Devin Booker, is the same way. So you have these two guys who are saying, hey, you know what? I know three is worth more than two. You know, that, that saying has been done to death, but they found a way to be like, Hey, an efficient shot's an efficient shot. And if we're going to be shooting 50 to 60% on our mid range, then I'll take that. I'll take that over shooting 35% from three, which career is what Chris Paul and Devin Booker average. So for them, they're getting to their spots and then they have guys who can knock down open threes. I mean, Cam Johnson is, he was mocked. You know, when he when they took him as high as they did, they took him with the 11th overall pick a couple of years ago. And people liked him as a, hey, you know, maybe we draft him in like the mid to late first round. And he goes 11th overall and people were scratching their heads like, what the hell? And now, look, I don't think Phoenix was planning on, you know, Chris Paul coming in, but to get a player who's just going to be and he's also a really good defensive player. I was really impressed by what I saw out of Cam Johnson. I don't know if that's going to be a consistent thing for him. But Cam Johnson is good for three, you know, at least three three pointers a game, at least. Uh, Mikael Bridges, and you know, as a Sixers fan, I hated the trade when it happened. When we picked up an extra draft pick, we traded away Mikael Bridges, who we took tenth overall to get Zaire Smith. And I'm not blaming Zaire Smith for for his situation because he, you know, had a lot of health issues and ultimately kind of got screwed. And, and it did kind of screw over the Sixers. But you know, I, I wasn't blaming anybody there because it was like a serious like lung infection. Um, and, and those kinds of unfortunate things happen. But what Mikael Bridges would be on the Sixers team, you know, for as much as I love Matisse Thibel, what Mikael Bridges would be for them this year as that lengthy wing defender to have had him in that series against Atlanta. I mean, I, I don't think the Sixers lose even with a banged up Joel Embiid and, and everything else. But Mikael Bridges playing 30, 30 minutes a game in an NBA finals, scoring 14 points. 
I, I that you can't beat that two or four from three. He's going to be able to hit open threes. Uh, and and they, the fact that they did all of this too on an off night for Devin Booker. Now look, Devin Booker still scored 27 points. It's not like he wasn't pouring it in, but eight of 21 from the field, one of eight from three, those aren't the stats that you're hoping for from your, you know, your all-star, your, your number two, but kind of like your one B to go with Chris Paul. I mean, Devin Booker is one of the most consistent and, and flexible scores that we have in the NBA because he can do it from anywhere. He can pour it in from deep, but he goes one of eight from three does go 10 for 10 from the line, which is good because especially after that broken nose, it seemed like he was a little bit hesitant in that series against the Clippers to really get physical. And it seems like he's kind of gotten past that. He definitely hated wearing the mask wearing the, he was, he was like full on like Alabama during the pandemic. He hated wearing the freaking mask, but this Suns team is deep. You know, they have eight guys that they can really trust probably yeah about eight guys and the unfortunate news that came out right before i started recording this is that dario Saric, who is one of my favorite uh past sixers and one of my favorite guys in the league uh tore his acl last night uh, two minutes into the nba finals so he will be done um, but again you take him out you still have tory craig who is as a small forward i mean there's still only one center on this roster which is incredible so if anything happens to deandre eight and they're really going to be in trouble because they don't have charge frank Kaminsky plays four minutes towards the end of the game last night um definitely don't want to be putting him too much about to that you have jay crowder who despite only scoring one point it was a plus 19 last night he's affecting the game in so many different ways i think he's just so solid of an NBA player knows where he needs to be knows what he can do on defense and look he had a bad shooting night 0 for 5 from 3 0 for 8 from the floor he had one one of two from the free throw line in like the last minute but also the 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 Suns were perfect from the free throw line until the like the last minute of the game when Jay Crowder went one of two and they ended up going 25 of 26 from the free throw line if you're making 25 of 26 from the free throw line you're going to win a lot of games, especially when your opponent ends up going nine of 16. I mean, Milwaukee was just not getting to the line and Giannis for as good as he is, you know, seven of 12 from the line when you're the only one on your team, he took 12 free throws. The rest of the team combined took four, right? So if you're the, basically the only guy on your team getting to the line, it's going to spell trouble, especially when the guy who's getting to the line is Giannis. Who's not a great free throw shooter. And the whole crowd is chanting one, two, three, which they're going way too fast, by the way. They were they were definitely rushing it up. But you could notice, I think it was getting to Giannis because when he was first in the beginning of the game, when he's first taking his free throws, he was like the crowd was at like 12, 13 by the time he's you know taking his free throw. By the end of the game, he was releasing it at like eight, nine, you know. So I think the crowd actually was kind of getting to Giannis a little bit. And Look, to Giannis's immense credit, to have an injury as scary as that, that luckily didn't turn out to be anything terrible, and then have, you know, reports where that he could have gone if, if they ended up going seven against Atlanta. Luckily, they didn't have to. But Giannis coming back, pushing the envelope, doing as much as he can, and still, I mean, look, he had 20 points. 20 points and 17 rebounds. Now, 20 points isn't amazing in the NBA these days, right? There's probably a hundred guys in the league who could average 20 points a game if they were just given that many shots and that many opportunities. But, you know, Giannis is, he needs to be better. He needs to hopefully time and more rest and recovery and, and therapy on that knee will ultimately help him kind of get there. Uh, on the Milwaukee side of this, yeah, obviously Giannis needs to be better. Um, Chris Middleton had a bit of a weird game. I mean, he played 45 minutes in this game. Again, this is, goes to the lack of depth that the, the Milwaukee Bucks have in terms of a rotation. Uh, but 20, uh, 29 from him goes 12 of 26 from the floor. That's not going to cut it. But the real one that hurt them was Drew Holiday. And I was listening to a podcast earlier, and they were kind of debating about, like, what is Drew Holiday at this point in time? Now, I will forever love Drew Holiday – because he dapped me up at a Sixers game one time. My dad had won uh, through his work, had had won these like courtside seats. And it was the year I think he made the play. He made the all-star game for the Sixers. And he walked by and I was like, yo, Drew. And he like gave me a little head nod and he came up and dapped me up. And I was like, that was cool as shit. So I'm always going to love Drew Holiday. I, I, and I do think he's a really good player. But defensively, with all the switching that Milwaukee was doing, like they can't have that. 
Drew Holiday has to pick up Chris Paul and just has to grind with him as much as he humanly can. And I was watching SportsCenter after the game last night and they had Tim Legler on talking about, you know, well, if they're going to be screening Drew Holiday while he is picking up Chris Paul as high as he is, uh, you know, we're talking about like five or six feet behind, uh, you know, the the three-point line, you know, you don't need to worry about uh, Chris Paul pulling those deep threes. He might take a couple, but, you know, you'll live with one or two. You'll live with Chris Paul taking a, a 36, 37-foot three-pointer. For Drew Holiday, he has to be willing to go under these screens instead of constantly trying to fight over and then ultimately having to switch and get – because that's what Phoenix wants. Phoenix wants to get matchups where Chris Paul is going up against – you know, literally anybody other than Drew Holiday, whether it's Brooke Lopez, Chris Middleton, PJ Tucker, Giannis, literally any of them. Chris Paul's looking to get that matchup as long as it's not Drew Holiday, because Drew Holiday is arguably the best on ball defender in the league. I think it's somewhere up there between him and Ben Simmons. So uh, I really like um, what I've seen out of Phoenix, but Drew Holiday needs to make adjustments. Drew Holiday absolutely positively has to be willing to fight under these screens, getting over from the sides here and, and, and not allowing Chris Paul to dictate the matchups that he's having. Because, you know, when, when Milwaukee's switching as much as they are, you're just playing into his hand. You know, they want you to screen off of him. Because then at that point, too, is Drew Hardy going to be picking up DeAndre Ayton? They're going to be – it just completely disorganizes. And that's where the, the mental, mental game of Chris Paul being so extremely brilliant makes it, uh, you know, that much more effective. And it makes – he's so cerebral in the way he sees the game. You know, he can process things so quickly. And he can process it after, like, the first quarter. You know, we saw it last night. Like, the first quarter, they did a good job against him. It was kind of a tight game. And Chris Paul was like, all right, I figured it out. It took It took one quarter for Chris Paul to be able to figure that out. And so Milwaukee has to come back with this and realize, hey, we can't switch as much. And Drew Holiday has to just clamp down Chris Paul the entire time because otherwise they're not going to win this series. I just don't think they're going to be able to. Um, the Brooke Lopez stuff, you know, we saw him have that monster game six, but what was it, it was like 31, 33 points, something like that against Atlanta. You know, he had a really bad game in game one against Atlanta. And it was very similar where Brooke Lopez only played like 25 minutes. They pull him. And now Brooke Lopez, you know, sitting on the bench and thinking, oh man, is he even going to be able to survive in this series? He ends up winning them the series in game six. So uh, they're going to have to do some adjustments with him on offense. But again, the size that Milwaukee has, they, they have to utilize that more. Because DeAndre Ayton, yeah, he doesn't foul a whole lot, but he will if you attack him over and over and over again. You know, he's not going to be, unless, it's, unless he's literally the greatest defensive player, or at least the greatest at not fouling that we've ever seen, they're going up against a two-time MVP in Giannis, who's taller than, than DeAndre Ayton and longer and stronger. Or you're going to go up against Brooke Lopez, who's a legit seven foot one. You know, they have to start getting those guys involved more on the offensive end. And my guess is, look, Bud is a, is a really good coach. He's had moments. I think a lot of people thought if they'd lost that series against Atlanta, that he would be out. I don't think he'll get fired after taking, you know, leading his team to the NBA finals. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll see ultimately how it plays out. But I, I'm excited. I mean, I don't know what game two is going to look like, but I know it's not going to look like game one. This is the trap we fall in every single year, right? Game one, we see one team win or it's a blowout or it's a really close game. We're thinking, oh, man, this series is going to be tight. You know, like I, I think back to the J.R. Smith, you know, screw up when he forgot how much time was on the clock with the LeBron and Golden State. I think it was LeBron and yeah, it was Cavs and Golden State in 2018. I think it was that year. And Everyone thought, like, man, you know, that, that game was so close. Cleveland should have won it. They would have had a chance if George Hill's hitting those free throws at the end of the game. Like, they would have had a legitimate chance to win that game. And the rest of the series was not close. I think – I don't think they swept them. I'd have to look it up. It was either a sweep or it was like a five-game series, but it was not close that second time. So that was definitely one of those series where it's like game one, oh, my God, this insane ending. And, look, I think the J.R. Smith kind of threw it off. But we've also seen series where it's like, you know, the the Toronto and Philly series from a couple of years ago, where every single win was a blowout from either side until literally game seven. And if you saw watched game one and Toronto won by like 15 points, 
then you'll be sitting there thinking, oh man, Toronto just has their number. And that's never really how it works. So we're going to sit here and for the next day and a half, we're going to talk about, oh man, the Phoenix Suns, they're going to walk their way through this. I don't think that ends up happening. I think Milwaukee, I think there's a good chance Milwaukee goes in and wins game two. Now there are definitely adjustments they have to make, no question. But if I'm Phoenix, you know, keep doing what you're doing, but don't get set in your ways. And if you're Milwaukee, you have to come out aggressive. You know, we saw what happened when they lost game one against Atlanta. They come out and just absolutely shellacked Atlanta in game two, by like almost 30. So I wouldn't expect that because I think this Phoenix team is much better all around than Atlanta. But Giannis, if we know one thing, is that Giannis is not going to stop being aggressive. Even when he's playing on like a banged up knee and he was a borderline, he was a game time decision. Like most people didn't think he was going to play in game one. And he still did. And even with that, he still was aggressive in that first half. And I think he got tired. I think, you know, the the time away and, and also with the kind of banged up knee, I think he was a little hesitant. But, uh, yeah, it was it was a really fun game. And it was uh, – it, it'll be interesting to see because I don't think the series is going to stay this way. I don't think it's going to be all Phoenix. I, I think Phoenix will win in, like, six. That would be my official prediction as of now. That's what I, you know – problem with not putting out a podcast before game one is you don't really get to lock into an official prediction or people are going to be like, Oh, you're just going off game one. No, I, I think Milwaukee wins game two, but I think Phoenix ultimately wins in six or seven uh, because I just think Chris Paul's on a mission here. And I don't think Chris Paul is going to lose, uh, is going to lose a series. He's just, he's been so good. And the fact that he's for the first time in his career, he's just, in a, he's being an aggressive scorer and not just that orchestrator. I think that's really scary. Because if they're going to continue switching and he's going to be able to find the matchups that he wants, you know, Drew Holiday, he might be able to lock him down for a game or two, but he's not going to be able to do it for a whole series because that, that's just such a tall task to put on Drew Holiday. I just – I don't know if they're going to be able to do that. So that's, I guess, my official prediction now. I'm going to say Suns in six. But they looked really good last night. They looked really good, really sharp, really malleable, right? They can kind of flux in and out. It's always a responsive, right? It's they're, – they're a very – there's, they can be the aggressor, but their ability to adjust on the fly is really impressive on the offensive end. Like, it's it's crazy. And when you have guys like Cam Johnson and Mikael Bridges, who Cam Johnson's definitely more of a scorer, Mikael Bridges is also is much more of like a slasher, but they both can do the other. You know, like Cam Johnson's ability to cut and back screen and, and set picks and go to the open man. Like, that's really hard to do for someone that you would think of. I want to say it's hard. It's, I mean, it is hard to do. We're talking about professional athletes here, right? But it's not necessarily what you think of when you think of Cam Johnson. You're thinking of like a spot-up shooter. And he, he's not just that. Meanwhile, Mikael Bridges is this length is long. You know, he cuts a lot. He's a really good slasher. He can set picks. But he's also a really good shooter too. So when you have two guys like that that can kind of interchange in and out of the lineup, um, I mean, combined, they played 51 minutes. Uh, the and, and they do a great job of staggering Booker and, and Chris Paul. Jeff Van Gundy pointed that out last night. Uh, they're going to be a really tough team to, to knock out for Milwaukee. But it's Giannis, you know. And if Giannis comes out in game two, looks a lot healthier, he gets a day off today, and then he'll have another day of rehab and therapy to get that knee ready, and we'll see how it turns out. But I like Milwaukee in game two, but I like Phoenix to win the series. Uh, all right, take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about the other thing that was on my TV that was actually had it on the main TV uh, projector uh, while I was watching the game on my laptop. And we'll get into that uh, right after this. All right. So the NBA finals are coming up game one. And I was obviously really excited to watch game one. It was one of those sports days where it was like, it was a, it was a Tuesday and it was, I saw somebody say, this is the Mondayest. Tuesday of all time, right? Because, you know, 4th of July is on Sunday. Everyone's going out. And normally it's like a Sunday. You get the Sunday scaries, going through all that shit. And then you're dreading Monday. But then Monday's a national holiday. And you don't even have to go to, like, the barbecues. You don't even have to do the whole 4th of July thing because you got that out of the way on Sunday. And because 4th of July was a Sunday and most people had that Monday off, I didn't. I had to be in in the morning, but no big deal. Just a grinder out here, putting in the work, putting in the time. But just because... You know, so many people were able to go out and have a full-blown crazy 4th of July. And then you had that Monday to recover. And now you're thinking, oh, God, I have to go into Tuesday. 
Then we get smashed with back-to-back fantastic television, right? We have the NBA game ones, and then we had the match, all right? And anyone who listens to this podcast knows how I feel about Bryson DeChambeau, right? Cannot stand the guy. But even Bryson DeChambeau being one of the four guys in the match this year did not deter me. Now, I did not watch the third version of the match. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about the celebrity golf foursome, right? The 2v2. They did it uh, a few years ago or a couple of years ago. Did the first one, it was Tiger versus Phil. And it was a pay-per-view, which thank God they steered away from that. Because I remember, I think it was on Bleacher Report that they, they did it through their app and it it crashed and basically half the people missed it and they just decided to start airing it on TNT uh, and they had to refund everybody's money, which was a colossal failure. But for me, I didn't pay for it. I just happened to see that it was on and I watched the Tiger versus Phil on TNT and it was great. It was very fun. Uh, and then the following one was Tiger and Peyton Manning versus Tom Brady and Phil Mickelson. And it was a ton of, that one was, was really entertaining, right? The famous uh, Tom Brady holes out on a, on like a par five, I think it was. And then he ends up like ripping his pants later. And it was really fun. All the guys are mic'd up and, and the, the commentating crew can talk to them. The third one, I didn't get a chance to watch. I think it was working. I was doing something, but that was Charles Barkley and uh, Steph Curry or Charles Barkley and Phil against Steph Curry. And God, I can't remember who the, who the, the fourth person was. Um, any case, this one was Bryson DeChambeau and Aaron Rodgers against Tom Brady and Phil Mickelson. And it was, it was so much fun, honestly. Um, it was fun having Bryson there because if you like Bryson, you, you know, you love, him, right. Like the, he's got a very loyal fan base. Amazing. Enough. There's a lot of people who are big Bryson DeChambeau guys, but if you'd hated Bryson, it was fun to just, to just hate the guy. It was fun to like sit and watch him, you know, and his awkward chirps. And there are certain points where he was taking it like way, way too seriously. Like he was very, very like, oh, let me see, can you do this part again? Like, I want to show you this thing. He's like, oh, you got to line it up here. And, you know, whereas Phil comes at it with this, this awesome, like comedic energy to him, right? And he and Tom Brady just like, yeah, partner, I got you, partner. They just keep calling each other partner like crazy, which I found really funny. And, you know, as, as someone who maybe isn't the biggest Tom Brady fan when he's, you know, when your team's playing against him, I've, I've enjoyed this renaissance of Tom Brady's, you know, off the field life. You know, he was so guarded when he was in uh, New England and now he's just this fun, easygoing, silly, goofy guy. But the way that they set up everything and they weren't afraid to like take shots at these guys, like even the, the pregame or the pre-match, they did like a Jeopardy thing with the four of them. And the questions were hilarious. You know, they went at Bryson for the Brooks, you know, debate. They went at Phil for him versus Tiger in his age. Uh, they went after the Green Bay situation with Aaron Rodgers. I mean, they were just asking him point blank, like just straight up. Hey, Aaron, you know, everyone wants to know what, what are we doing? Like, what are you coming back to Green Bay? And they're just asking him straight up, like in the middle of this golf event. And Aaron Rodgers very funnily kind of sidesteps it all. But the way that this whole setup goes, it, it really is fun because it's, it, I get if you if you're not a golf fan, I think you would enjoy this more than watching regular golf because you'll know two of the people. But if you are a golfer and you're a big golf fan, you're getting to see really incredible golfers and you're getting to see just guys who out there, who are who are good golfers, you know, but are out there just kind of slapping it around. You know, Aaron Rodgers is like a five handicap. I think Tom Brady is like an eight or a nine. So like definitely good, good, good golfers. You know, I'm, I'm a little bit behind, you know, Tom Brady there. I'm like an 11, uh, but we're talking about really talented, like really good golfers still. Uh, but you get to see them compared to the PGA guys. And it gives you an appreciation for how incredible the PGA guys are. But it's also fun to see these incredible athletes who we all admire and look up to shank a shot into the woods, like watching Tom Brady, just struggle and absolutely like whiff on shots is honestly really entertaining. <laughs> same thing with Aaron Rodgers when they slice one into the woods and they're like, oh, that's gone, you know. And it's the same thing with Bryson because Bryson can hit the ball so freaking far, but then when he when he hooks one or he loses a ball, it's just like you get this little fist pump. Like, yes, I, lo I love watching these guys struggle. It's it's so to me it's 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 so entertaining. Uh, they also they did it in Montana in Big Sky Country, and this golf course. Is, has to be one of the most beautiful golf courses I've ever seen in my life. 
I mean, I, I've always heard like Montana is at the top of my bucket list of places in America I want to go visit. It has been for a couple of years. Like I, I, I've always heard incredible things about Montana and the way that this was shot on this golf course and everything else. Like I was blown away. It was absolutely stunning. There was a bear walking around. Like when they, when you go play this course, apparently they give you bear spray as like, Hey, there might be a bear on the course. There was a, a coyote who ran across at one point. There's all this crazy wildlife. Uh, and it's absolutely stunning, but there's also a really cool wrinkle to this, which is that they were playing at such a high elevation that you could hit the ball further. So like Tom Brady, uh, I think it was the second hole or the third hole. He's up there and uh, it's like a 390 yard par four. And because of the elevation and it was also a good ways downhill, he drove the green like on a 390 yard par four he drove the green now bryson did it too bryson did it with a three wood right so we've seen we saw bryson hit a ball uh, that carried almost 400 i think it was a carried like 400 plus yards right so we're, we're seeing just absolute missiles we're seeing guys hit it so far and they did a really interesting version that it's called a modified alternate shot format which is all four of the guys tee off and then you, you can pick of the twosome, right? So in Rodgers and Bryson, Rodgers hits a good drive. Bryson hits us out of the woods or vice versa. You know, you can then pick, all right, we're going to play Bryson's ball here. But then Aaron Rodgers has to take that shot. And then from there, it's alternating. So you're only playing one ball, which in the past, I don't think they did that. I think they were just playing straight up like match play golf. And match play golf is also fun too, because you're not worried about scores. It's, it just, it makes it an extra level of competitiveness. And it's why I love the Ryder cup. The Ryder cup's coming around. It'll be in the fall. The Ryder cup is one of the best golf events of the year. Um, and, and it switches back and forth. There's a couple of different versions of it, uh, but that's all match play too. And, and match play golf is a ton of fun, but then you're getting to see really great golfers going up against really mediocre or like pretty good golfers here uh, in, in the match. And it's all personalities that you like. They had Obama on because they raised a ton of money for charity, which is the also the other thing that's really, really incredible about this. I think they may, uh, raised over raised money for 6 million meals to be given out, uh, which obviously with the pandemic and everything is, is absolutely incredible, but no question. I mean, the, the match is, one of my, my, my favorite things, I was kind of out on it last year when, when the staff and, and Charles Barkley was playing. There was only one PGA tour. I think it was only Mickelson was the only PGA guy. And they were like, well, Steph's a really good golfer. We all know he's like a scratch golfer. So he'll just go up against Phil. And it's like, no, the difference there is still absolutely insane. And, and Steph didn't play well. Uh, I remember watching the highlights of it and kind of following up. But uh, I, I thought it was absolutely phenomenal. I thought it was absolutely phenomenal. Um, they're mic'd up. They got an AirPod in the whole time. Uh, you know, Rob Gronkowski calls in at one point. Baker Mayfield call, you know, zooms in at one point. It was it was really, really interesting um, the whole time. And they actually did something too, which I've seen a lot of like internet videos of people who do this with good golfers. But um, it's a one club hole, right? So different holes they had like you know longest drive, and then they had closest to the pin, and there would be some sort of charity incentive. But one hole, I think it was the 14th was one club so off the tee you only you're only allowed to use one club the entire hole and that includes driving mid-range uh your, your short game and putting so aaron Rodgers is sitting there and, and tom brady almost drilled like a 10-foot putt with his pitching wedge or seven iron or it was it was an iron uh which is weird because you kind of have to you have to like skull it right you have to like tow it uh and hit it super super thin and, and you hold it up above, above so you're almost like striking it like a putter it's a really, it's a, it, it was such a fun, such a fun day. Um, and it's a long event and they do it for charity and they raised a ton of money. And, and ultimately, you know, Rogers and Bryson won, uh, but it was 16 holes of really entertaining golf and fun chirps, you know, the Aaron Rodgers and his dry humor, you know, you know, Phil would kind of be bragging because he won the longest drive against Bryson, right? And his 51-year-old against the the scientist, the guy who hits it a mile. You could tell that no one there was really vibing with Bryson either, which just like reaffirms that people really do not like him. His caddy doesn't even like him because his caddy literally quit on him the morning of uh, the day before a tournament, which was hilarious when he was the defending champion too. Um, 
so yeah, I, I got to say, I just, I enjoyed it all. If, if you didn't watch it or you think I'm just an idiot for this, whatever, I don't care. I, 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 we all have different shit that we like. They're like, man, I can't believe I just spent four hours watching that. But I did. I 100% just spent four hours, five hours, however long it was watching two amateurs, but two super famous amateurs. Uh, and, and it was, it was crazy. Roger's a hell of a putter too. Like a phenomenal putter. Uh, and he was putting with his three wood on it. It was great. So I, I encourage you whenever they announce the next one, take the time to watch it a little bit. If you're not a big golf fan, you're not going to watch it all. But if you're looking for a way, if you're the kind of person who's like, you know, golf is just so boring to me, this will make you like it better because they have, uh, you know, Trevor Immelman, who's like an actual golf analyst and was a master's winner. But then they also had Larry Fitzgerald and Charles Barkley there, you know, and Barkley's just chirping at guys. It, it, the whole, the entire experience I thought was really, really fun. So uh, next time there's a match, take some time to, to check it out. Cause I, I really think, uh, I think people would like it. I really do. Uh, all right, quick break. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about how college sports as a whole got flipped on its head last week. And uh, I think it's for the better. Not everyone does. I think it's for the better. We'll talk about that next. All right, so last week, July 1st, so literally a week ago, we're a week into it from the time that I'm recording this, uh, the name, image, and likeness laws went into effect, right? So now college athletes across the country can make money and profit off of their name, image, and likeness. And we talked a little bit about this a couple weeks ago with me and Vito, but Name, image, and likeness basically just, it's as, it's as American as apple pie, right? It's capitalism at its finest. And it was insane that for so many years, college athletes couldn't make money. I have a cousin who was a diver in college, an incredible diver. He literally couldn't fill out an NCAA bracket for March Madness. You know, he, he couldn't get a free, you know, lunch down, down the line. Like there are, there are so many little things that you're like, well, why does this matter? What, what, what does this mean? These improper benefits. And it was so stupid that the Supreme court who is as divided as it can be, right? Like it's literally intended to have nine people. Now it used to be seven, but now we're at nine people who can dis who like are so different that we get as well-rounded a judgment on it as possible. And even with the Brett Kavanaugh's, right, and, and, and some of the more extreme, uh, maybe on the conservative side, that, that we have now, even with them, the Supreme Court voted nine to nothing. Nine to nothing that it was illegal for the NCAA to not allow college players to profit off their name, image, and, li- and likeness. Like That is how one-sided this situation is. So just from that standpoint, this is a good thing. Now, I work in college, in the college sports sphere when it comes to the media, and you'd be amazed at how many people think this is the end of college football, you know, whether it's this or the transfer, transfer portal or the, you know, there's going to be pay for play. And look, there's a chance that down the line, there's a very good chance down the line that pay for play will become a thing. All right. And we're already seeing some little bit of funny business going on right now when it comes to name, image, and likeness itself. But the problem with saying that name, image, and likeness is bad or it shouldn't be allowed, I mean, you're just you're fundamentally wrong. It's 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 absolutely un-American to say that someone can't make money off of their name. That's literally why people come here. That's why people get onto rafts. They want to, it's it's being able to have the freedom of and the capitalism and, and all the shit that people want from America. You can't say that you can't profit off of these things. So the laws went into effect last week. And I was doing a show with Sean Farnham, who is a college basketball analyst for ESPN. And he uh, akin, he had an interesting analogy to this where he said, you know, this was the day before. So we're just Jan, June 30th or 31st. And he was saying, remember Y2K, 1999, New Year's Eve, 1999? People thought the second that the, the clock strikes midnight, the world would end. 
right? That all of a sudden the apocalypse would be upon us, that all the computers would shut down and go haywire because they wouldn't be able to process it. And, and everyone was freaking out and, and buying cases and cases of water and extra food and getting into their bomb shelters just in case. Well, what happened, right? The clock turned, nothing happened. It was the same. And I called him, I, I said to him, I said, Sean, I have to disagree. Not that it's the end of the world, because it's not. But I think a lot of these deals are in place. He thought we would wake up on, on, June, on July 1st and there would be no major deals. It would just be a regular day and that things wouldn't really have started yet. And I said, I don't know about that. I genuinely think that when we wake up on July 1st, there's going to be a storm, an absolute storm of college players with endorsement deals that were prepared for this moment. We've known for, for months now that this was coming. And especially once the Supreme Court had their ruling and it's like, no, this is really coming. And then the day before the NCAA puts out like loose guidelines because they've been so reactive and behind the ball on this for so many years. The second that we the clock struck midnight on July 1st, 2021, there were going to be deals made. And there were a ton. There have been a ton of deals that have been made. Um, most notably, I mean, there's, I, I'm not going to go through the list because there's literally thousands of them, um, you know, but we, you can look at people like Bo Nix. You know, Bo Nix signs a deal with Milo's Sweet Tea, which is a very popular sweet tea down in Alabama. He's one of the first ones. Dare King, uh, he and alongside Mackenzie Milton, who's a quarterback at Florida State, they have been the first student athletes had uh, like an NFT. Uh, they co-founded this company called Dreamfield, uh, which essentially will allow them. It's, it's a business that they're going to be able to run using their their fame as top tier college players. Uh, Mackenzie Milton, first player with a with a, an, an NFT about him. Uh, well, Kayvon Thibodeau, the defensive end, who is likely going to be a top two draft pick next year. He goes to Oregon. Phil Knight and Nike, they gave him an NFT. And that's a six-figure deal. Master P, the rapper Master P, his son is a basketball player. I believe at Tennessee State is where is where he's at. And I think it's basketball. It's basketball or football. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's basketball. He signed a $2 million deal to be the, the one of the brand ambassadors for a tech company that Master P is involved with. Right. And so all of these things, uh, the Cavender twins, who are a, a pair of, of kind of influencer esque uh, basketball players at uh, women's basketball players at Fresno State, and they signed a deal with Boost Mobile very early hours on on July 1st, uh, which, again, all of these things are, are really great. LSU went ham on this thing. Uh, they even sent up like they, I think it was a Times Square they put up on the screen, it was like uh, NILSU, you know, hashtag NILSU. And they're like posting up their players. They have a gymnast who's not even, according to the people I know who are in that area, is like third or fourth on the team in terms of like their rotation for the gymnast at LSU. But she has 1.1 million Instagram followers. She got a deal done and her face was up in Times Square excited for this. She also has a massive following on like TikTok, right? But here's, an, here's another side of this that I'm actually a little bit worried about. All right. If you look at what happened out of Miami today, which it's, it's not enough for people to feel like, oh man, like this is wrong. But this is the fear that I think a lot of people have. Uh, there is a, a guy down there who owns a gym. His name is uh, Dan Lambert and he owns a series of gyms and essentially what his offer here, he's a Miami fan. He's basically a booster, but what his, what his plan here is to give every single player on the Miami football team. He wants to give them $500 a month, every single player. But the problem is, is it's not because hey, you're going to be a, an endorsement guy for our gym or, or I want this specific player to be an endorsement guy in our gym. It's simply because they wear the uniform. So essentially, if you're on scholarship there, you're going to be getting an extra payment. And this is where the, the blurred lines between pay for play and name, image, and likeness is actually a little bit 
worrisome. And he, he, this was his quote about it. He's actually going to be on, on my channel on Sirius XM. Uh, and in about 30 minutes from now, I'm going to tune in and listen to that interview. And, and by the time most of you guys hear this, it will have already happened. But he said this yesterday, he, talking to ESPN, he said, I want to help the kids. I want to reward them for what they do. And I want a better product on the field, too. I want to um, uh, improve the reputation of the school and the team I love so much. I think it's a cool opportunity to get involved and make a difference. The line in there that is concerning, I want a better product on the field. That is a booster. That is what boosters do. They donate money to the programs to, you know, build up infrastructure and add new gyms and, and do whatever these cans. And in some cases, give paper bags under the door, you know, under the table. Hey, don't, don't, you know, like that stuff has already existed, but now they're giving $500 a month. It's a $540,000 deal this year that he's committing to Miami. And so the, the blurred line here between, well, is that pay for play or is that NIL? That all falls on the NCAA. The, the NCAA is not going to be happy about this, but it's their own damn fault. The NCAA has dragged their feet on this for so long. This issue has been going on since way back in the Ed O'Bannon case when he basically got all of the NCAA athletes or all, all the NCAA video games shut down because the players weren't getting money off it. Now, some guys got money from it after the lawsuit was settled. Like I know my guy, Greg McElroy, Greg made, I think it was like $5,000 or something from being a part of the video game, but he was also the quarterback at Alabama, you know, and his team had won the national championship while he was there. So he's not getting the same cut to Ed O'Bannon, who was like a backup safety or tight end or special teamer, you know, like, and, and he went to Stanford, won the lawsuit, and then the video game got taken away. And that was years ago, like almost a decade ago, the NCAA has been intentionally not changing these rules because the NCAA just sucks. They suck so hard. It's crazy. It drives me absolutely nuts. All right. They spent $73 million in legal fees to only, only to have the Supreme court shut them down nine to nothing. That's how badly they didn't want this to pass. And in all of that time fighting it, instead of recognizing that it was going to happen anyway, recognizing that, yeah, we can fight it, but maybe we should have a backup plan just in case, they had nothing. They had to try to put together a committee to put together their set of rules. And even calling them rules is generous because they're like very, very vague guidelines. Even to do all of that, they put that in literally the last two weeks before July 1st. That's how behind the ball the NCAA has been here. And so while I don't love this Dan Lambert guy and what he's doing here, I don't, bl I don't blame him. Because in the way that their rules are, are, are set up, he can technically do this. And the laws that are based in Florida, he can do this. And look, it's ironic that it's happening at a place like Miami, who's had tons of problems with this in the past. You know, the guy Shapiro, who basically shut down the U in their prime. But this, this is, this is all on the NCAA. This is a direct correlation and a direct result of the NCAA dragging their feet and not doing what they need to do because they're just so damn set in their ways. I mentioned it earlier. The NCAA is not a proactive organization. They're a reactive organization just like the NFL has been for a long time. The NFL has always been a reactive, you know, a Ray Rice situation comes out and that's like, oh shit, well actually we should do something about it. CTE studies start coming out, players committing suicide, all this stuff. NFL goes, oh shit, okay, maybe we'll do something about it. You know, guys like Colin Kaepernick, racial injustice, all that stuff. It takes George Floyd and the entire country to wake up. And look, I mean, there's plenty of the country that is a reactive by nature. But the NFL can afford to do that because they're the biggest sports organization in the world. The NCAA is a massive organization and they've been able to be reactive to everything for a long time, but it comes at the price of people absolutely despising the NCAA in the way that they run the shit. And then you look at a league like the NBA, who's proactive, who wants to be on the cutting edge, who want to be on the front lines, want to be the first ones getting through the door and stuff. And how much the NBA has grown over the last 20 years. And yes, I know the ratings were down this year. Yes, I know people hate the regular season. And, the, and the, trust me, the NBA has got a lot of problems. I've talked about them on this pod. But they're still a proactive league. 
Whereas the NCAA, they want everything to stay the same as much as they possible, as much as possible. Because all of the school presidents, all of the executives of the NCAA, yes, they're putting on D3, D2, D1AA schools. Yes, they're funding a lot of that stuff. They're giving them equipment. They're, they're helping put on these tournaments. And as soon as we get into a pay-for-play model, that will change a lot. Like that's going to change a lot of stuff in terms of what the NCAA can do because chances are either football as a whole is going to end up going, like the cash cows, the golden geese of college football and March Madness, they're not going to be able to fund everything. Or schools are going to have to individually pay them players themselves, in which case they're going to have to cut a ton of programs, but they're not going to cut the ones that bring money into the school like football. That's why I've never been a big fan of pay for play. But name, image, and likeness is a no-brainer. It's an absolute no-brainer. And the NCAA needs to get their shit together because the next wave of this is coming. There will be lawsuits when guys can't make certain money, when, when certain guys can't do things. There, there are going to be more things coming on the line, and they have to get out in front of it, or else they're going to be even more up shit creek without a paddle, without a boat. <laughs> they're just going to be floating down shit creek like you're tubing down the Delaware. All right, uh, quick break. Going to come back, wrap up the pod. All right, last thing here in our sports gumbo pod. Uh, I want to thank everybody for listening. Rate, review, subscribe. Tell your friends. I haven't said that one in a little bit, but you know what? Tell your friends. Tell one, one person. Just pick one person in your life. Tell them about the pod. Uh, things have started to calm down a little bit for me, so uh, we're going to get back to a two-pod-a-week schedule. And uh, I might be a little loose on what days I want to, I want to stick to the, the Tuesday, Friday, but you know, sometimes your schedules don't, don't work out for that. You know um, the last thing I want to talk about here is Shakari uh, Richardson. And I'm sure all of you listening have heard about this story. She's the Olympic sprinter who was basically kicked out of the Olympics for testing positive for a chemical that is found in marijuana. I've talked about weed on this show before. Uh, I have talked about it in the context of why it's ridiculous that we don't allow athletes to smoke pot. Like how, how ridiculous is it that this drug that has been linked to so much systemic racism and so much injustice in the world and the amount of people who are incarcerated because of weed, which is now legal, fully legal in 19 states, just got legalized here in Virginia. The fact that we're still dealing with this shit, it drives me up a wall. It, it, it honestly is so ridiculous. I mean, this is one of the best athletes that America has. One of the best female athletes, but also just one of the best Olympians, period, that America has. Who also said in an interview on the Today Show after this happened that she was smoking weed to help cope with the death of her mother. Now, I'm not going to be the kind of person who's like, hey, drown your sorrows in alcohol and drugs. Like, go on, do that. But I can't imagine the stress that she's under. I can't imagine being an Olympic athlete after it got pushed back a year because of COVID anyway. And now Japan just declared a state of emergency today, two weeks before the Olympics are supposed to start. And you're, you're trying to wrap your head around this. How the hell is this going to work? People from all these different countries in the middle of a pandemic. How are they going to set up the, the village? How is all this going to work? And you're training. And then you come out and you crush it. I mean, she absolutely crushed it. Shattered records. Fastest American woman of all time. And you're not going to have her on the Olympic team because she smoked pot. And on top of it, they're sending this girl who's a B from BYU runner. She's a Mormon. And she has the audacity to come out and said, I'm here, uh, you know, because I earned it, A, but then B, because I want to use my platform to help teach young kids to stay off of drugs. Like, are you kidding me? That's going to be your response? You're not going to have the back of one of the biggest role models in the world, particularly for young black women? Are you out of your mind? The, the tone deafness in that comment. I'm, I don't even 
even remember her name and I wouldn't even want to give it the credence of putting it even on a podcast like this that doesn't have some massive following. It's not worth it. Because honestly, like, fuck that. That's absurd. And now we're punishing one of the best athletes we have in this country after what she had to go through in the last year, the uncertainty, and then also coping with the death of her mother. So why she wants to smoke a little weed? Who cares? Who freaking cares? It's not a, it's not steroids, right? We're not we're not talking about shooting up HGH here. All right. We're not talking about doping. We're talking about smoking weed. And I get it. Rules are rules, right? That's what I want to say. Well, the rules are rules. Well, the rules are stupid. And now we're punishing brilliant athletes. It's unreal. It's unreal. And the state she was smoking in, it was legal. But because we're so backwards in this country when it comes to weed, she's screwed. And the thing is, is people love the Olympics. People genuinely do. Like, they will sit and watch everything. I know people who are like, I'll take the Olympics over the Super Bowl. I'll take the Olympics over the NBA Finals, over the MLB World Series. I'll take it over any of that. It's supposed to be this really special thing, but just like FIFA, right, in this world sport that has so many hands in the cookie jar, there gets to be all of this corruption and outdated, and it's these old fucking white guys who are so out of touch from the world, and they just want to deepen their freaking pockets, and they're so completely uninformed about the history of weed and the criminal justice system in this country, and the blatant racial tones that litter it all just completely out of touch with it and the u.s olympic committee sucks they freaking suck for this and i'm heartbroken for shikari richardson i'm absolutely heartbroken for her and the only positive thing that's come out of this is the amount of people that have come out and supported her Manuel Acho actually came out and said, hey, you know what? I don't like it either, but the rules are the rules, and, you know, you failed the drug test. The NFL is not even testing for, you know, weed anymore. Like, when the NFL is more progressive than you, you need to take a look in the mirror. But Emmanuel Acho, who I like a lot, criticized it and said, hey, you know what? I, I don't have to like it, but look, it's, it's a drug. It's technically illegal. What you did was wrong, and, you know, it, it sucks, but that's that's the way it is. And then he got challenged by people to say, no, you're wrong. Do your research. And I give him all the credit in the world because he posted a, a pretty long video apologizing and then using his platform to tell people what he learned. And look, it's nobody's job to teach anybody else about this stuff. Get off your ass and learn about it. I mean, that, that's how it is with, with so many issues in this country. People are just blatantly uninformed and then have very hard opinions on it. But I give Emmanuel Acho a lot of credit for coming out and supporting it and saying, hey, I was wrong. And the, and the Olympic Committee's wrong for doing this. And there's a lot of people out there who are giving that support. But you know what? We can give all the support in the world. We can say as many amazing things about Shakari Richardson, how unfair this is, and say we stand with her. It's not going to change it. It's not going to change at all. There's an amazing documentary on HBO. It's called The Weight of Gold. It was Michael Phelps was producing it. It talks about the issues with depression that Olympic athletes face because they spend four years for a nine second race for 20 throws of a javelin for five games of, of basketball for four rounds of golf. You know, these, these people are training their whole life, especially in like niche sports, like whitewater rafting. That's in the Olympics. If you didn't know uh, for, for softball players, who, you know, softball and baseball back in the Olympics this year. Um, you know, for any of these kind of outside sports, especially like archery or any of the track and field events, you spend your life training for such a short window. And then once the Olympics end, it's like the John Travolta walking in gif in, in, in Pulp Fiction, just looking around like, all right, what am I supposed to do now? 
And at least, and, and that's where a lot of this depression comes from. There've been many Olymp- Olympians who have committed suicide. People have won gold medals who've committed suicide because you, you set a goal in mind and you work for it for so long. And then it's like, I right, well, now do I, what do I do? What, do I, what, am, what am I supposed to do with my life now? And at least those people get that opportunity to do it. And then we'll hopefully have the help and support when they come back to figure out what the next steps of their life are going to be. But Shakari Richardson is not even getting that. This is her peak. This is her absolute highest moment. And she's not even going to get a chance to sniff it because of weed, because of old, old fucking white guys completely out of touch with the world and not letting her in. She got kicked off the relay team too. It's absolutely appalling. And my heart breaks for it. Because this isn't just a, a sports issue, right? This is this is a much deeper topic than that. And it's it's devastating. Absolutely devastating. And I hope I hope something changes. I mean, we don't even know if we're gonna have the Olympics right now. Japan's in in a state of emergency because of COVID. I don't know. We'll see. We will see. All right. Um, that's the pod. Great show. Feel really good about that one. Um, if you liked it, shoot me a text. If you have my number. Uh, if you don't, let me know on Twitter at, at Jeff underscore Gimple at read option pod. Uh, share it out. I would love to hear anyone's thoughts, uh, comments, concerns. DM me. Always open. Um, <laughs> And, uh, yeah, enjoy game two. Uh, We're going to have a pod come out on Friday reacting to Thursday night games too. And uh, I'm hoping to have Vito and Scotty on the pod uh, or one of the two on the pod that day as well. So uh, appreciate you all for listening. We'll be back later on. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. And uh, I'm getting ready to go play some, some softball for the first time in a couple of years. So I'm pretty stoked. Take it easy, everybody.